there are two groups of individuals that we are addressing today. One, fellow citizens of the kingdom that does not pass away. And as you, fellow saints, as we talked about this morning, and citizens, we are glad that you are here. Secondly, those who have yet to become citizens of that kingdom. And there are those who are present this morning who may be pondering becoming a child of God. Those who may be listening who are thinking about spiritual things more seriously than you have in previous days. And we want to address you as well as we think about spiritual things that will help us to grow closer to God and to be the kinds of people that he wants us to be. Whatever camp you are in, wherever you are spiritually on your journey, we're glad that you've chosen to be here today. And thank you for being an encouragement to us and certainly an encouragement to me. I invite you to open your Bibles back to where our brother read from in 1 Kings chapter 8. And while that's not necessarily the anchor text for our study today, we're going to be in a number of different passages, mostly in the New Testament today. I want to look at one verse in that scripture reading that our brother read for us there in 1 Kings chapter 8, and I want to focus in on the last verse, verse 61, that we read just a moment or so ago. Here we are now two weeks into the new year, and over the couple of weeks leading into 2024, I spoke about some of the resolution kind of concepts that we often think about when we turn into a new year, and I want us to continue by thinking about our commitment to the church that we make, not just today, not just this week, but for the remainder of this year and for the remainder of our lives together. And so in verse 61, it says, let your heart therefore be loyal, which we sang about in just a few moments ago, to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. I love 1 Kings chapters 7 and 8 because it's just this beautiful speech and prayer at this momentous occasion in the history of the Lord's people thousands of years ago. And this verse 61, while the New King James doesn't render it this way, some versions use the word, let us be committed to the Lord. And I think we understand what it means to be committed, but we're going to talk about that for just a couple of seconds here in just a moment or two. And I want us to talk about commitment to the church. And I want you to think about not what someone else's commitment looks like, not what your family member's commitment looks like, but I want you to think about what your commitment looks like going forward over the course of this relatively new year. I want us to start with just two very basic and key questions. And the first of those is, what do we mean by commitment? I think we understand what it means, but I thought about using a couple of different definitions that you could come across or that are universally agreed to. And one of those is the notion of the quality of being dedicated to some sort of an activity or some sort of a cause. And we are engaged in a great cause, a kingdom that never passes away. Those of you in the Wednesday night adult class just finished a study on the subject of Daniel. And while I was studying with some of the prophets, well, not studying with the prophets, but we were studying, the, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Uh, we were studying in the high school class, the prophets. I know you all were engaged in a study of the idea that a kingdom that will not pass away and that will go over and 
ever last the Romans and the Greeks and the Medo-Persians, and certainly a kingdom that you and I are a part of as spiritually speaking, that enable us to live forever with our God. That's a cause that is great. Furthermore, it is a choice and a willful choice to participate in a cause or an activity. You and I are engaged in the dedication to a commitment to a cause. And while we may not understand all the various nuances of that when we first became Christians, when we were baptized, whether that was a a few months back or a year back or a decade back or maybe half a century back for some of you who are a little bit older, we begin to understand this is a real commitment and a lifetime dedication. And in fact, I don't think I ever talk to someone, especially who doesn't come from a religious background, and they don't really understand the spiritual side of things, and they're ready to be baptized, that I don't have a a commitment conversation, a a Luke 14, let's make sure we count the cost kind of conversation. Came across this, the idea of a commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood you set it in has left you. I thought that was kind of creative. I wish I would have come up with something like that. Yes, I want to be dedicated to, a, to a, a diet. Now the mood has left me. Yes, I want to be dedicated to studying more and doing better in high school. Now that mood has left a few days after the case. So there are things that we dedicate ourselves to. We understand what it means to make a commitment. The second question is equally important, and that is what do we mean by the church? And in a world today, the idea of the church is almost always associated with a a general social activity or a place to go for social and a mix of some spiritual things as well. But as Brother Eric talked about this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, we are engaged in almost exclusively spiritually minded things. It doesn't mean we don't care about the physical things and the needs of one another. More on that at the conclusion of our study when we think about the idea of some of our announcements we've even had today. But the Bible actually speaks of the church in two kind of broad ways. One is what we grew up with, at least in the 80s, we talked about the idea of the universal church, or someone used the idea of a global church, the very thing that Jesus built when he says, I will build my church. Acts chapter 20, he purchased it with his blood. What church did Jesus purchase? Did he purchase Northfield? Well, I suppose you could answer yes, he did. But in a general sense, when it says he purchased the church, he purchased the church in which all of us were baptized into. And we could take account, and I would suspect that a great majority of us were not baptized in the water behind me. We weren't baptized, quote, at Northfield's baptistry. But yet we are members of Northfield. Because the second concept of the church is the idea of a local church. And so, for example, for the next 10 weeks or so, we are going to be studying the letter that Paul would write particularly to the church and to the Christians at Ephesus. Sometimes we study letters to the church at Corinth. And coming up in the second quarter, we'll look at the church at Thessalonica or Philippi or Rome. So this study is is really focused in probably about 90% on our focus and our dedication to the local church by examining the various participation activities or the actions or the cause in which we are as a congregation engaged. 
Another way of putting that, to borrow from a conversation that just uniquely happened just a week and a half ago, is we're going to talk about the idea that there are acts of worship. There are things that we do when we come together on an occasion like today, particularly reserved for the Lord's Day, where we do particular, specific, defined things that are not ritualistic, but rather are the traditions established by the apostles and the inspired writers some 2,000 years ago. I say all that and belabor that point because I had a conversation just a, a week and a half ago with someone who was concerned and that maybe some of our younger people could not identify the various reasons why we do come together on the Lord's Day. Why do you come together on a Sunday? Well, because that's what my parents always did when we grew up. That's what grandparents did. Well, good that your parents and grandparents did that, but there's a reason. There's a particular set of things that we come together to. And I want to talk about those things today. And we engage in a great deal of our time by committing ourselves to singing praises to God. And I think without a doubt, we all agree that that is one of the most enjoyable things that we do when we come together on the Lord's Day. Aside from the fact that we are commanded by apostolic example to come together to sing praises to God as a key part of our worship, if, if the elders were to say, uh, we're just not going to sing Sunday morning, we're not going to sing at all. In addition to being alarmed as to why that decision has been made, there'd be an incredible letdown among the congregation. I mean, we're not going to sing praises to God. We're not going to sing praises to encourage one another. We're not going to do the very things that our brother talked about in the, in the prayer that we engaged in this morning. In Psalm, 80, Psalm 98 and verse 4, I was thinking about this particular passage, and there are lots of text in the Psalms that would make this particular point. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth in song and rejoice and sing praises. Isn't that what we've done over the last 20 minutes or so? We were singing praises. We were shouting to God. We were saying, we will be loyal to Christ, and whatever it is in his word, we will do not in name of man or creed. We'll do it all in God's name. And I appreciate Brother Josh picking out those songs that so aptly go along with our study together today. Every Christian I would argue, although this I could not prove biblically, but I would suggest needs to either memorize or be very familiar with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, where it talks about singing, making melody in your heart. Colossians 3, 16, we've been talking about how Colossians and Ephesians kind of mirror each other, says a very similar kind of thing. This is the verse that we go to, among other verses, there's about nine in the New Testament that talk about worship of God in song format. Incidentally, sometimes, this may be a little bit of semantics, someone would say, well, we don't use any music when we come together to worship. We've used a lot of music when we've come together to worship today. We did not use instrumental music. We used vocal music. And in fact, usually when we talk about singing, we focus on the mechanics of it, non-instrumental. And that's an important study. That's not necessarily the important part of our study together today. Certainly, if you have questions about that, uh, someone just uh, three months ago asked me a question. Why is it that we don't use instruments in our worship? And we had a good conversation about that. And hopefully 
cleared up some of the confusion on that. But I do want you to note two very simple but yet pertinent additional facts, and that one is singing is to God and to each other. We are singing to God. I appreciate the fact that, and I know it's sometimes a little bit maybe awkward or a little bit, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but we dim the lights, we put the slide up that says, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple, the earth keeps silent before him, Habakkuk chapter 2. The idea is let's get our minds centered on where we are supposed to be. I remember being a, a guest preacher at a church a number of years ago, and it was uh, abnormally energetic right before worship service started, which is a good thing. You want people to be excited to be together. And I haven't seen you in a, in a few days, and I haven't heard about your surgery, and I haven't heard, you know, we, we do that. Sometimes we got to kind of reel it back and say, what are we here for? That's, that's important too. But I remember one of the elders getting up and kind of just gently but firmly making an announcement saying, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we're going to get ready to worship God. If you could just be quiet for the next 60 seconds and we'll focus in. And it kind of stunned me as a 21-year-old preacher, as, as the guest preacher, what have I got myself into, this local congregation? But I appreciated the fact that we say, let's, let's focus ourselves on what we are about to do. We are going to sing to the eternal throne of God, and we're going to be singing to each other. Let me also suggest to you that singing is communal. I'm glad about that because you do not want a solo performance from me singing some sort of a song. Now, some others who are more talented than myself, maybe we would enjoy their singing, but we don't have solos or duets on the stage because this is not a performance for us. Our audience is the Lord to whom we praise, and it is an obligation, but it is also a privilege. And I use those words together because it is not only something that is a privilege, we enjoy it. And I think all of us would say in concert, even if we're not good singers or not, I enjoy doing that. And it's, it's wonderful to, do that, uh, to, to be engaged. It is truly an obligation. Let me suggest to you this before we move on, that if you are not here, you're not here. I go back to the sermon that David presented about two years ago on this subject, kind of in the heart of COVID when uh, live streaming became a, a bigger thing. And there are those who cannot be here on a chronic routine basis. We want to make sure that if you are watching or maybe you're here only once a month or whatever the case may be, and you can be here, that you'll take advantage of every opportunity to be here to sing with us so that we can sing to our God together and sing to one another as well. Our brother, Danny, took us through the Lord's Supper just a few moments ago, and we are, incidentally, blessed with so many men who are capable of taking passages and putting them together and then making some simple applications to help us partake of the Lord's Supper in a more meaningful way. There's nothing that says that we have to have someone make two to three or four minutes worth of comments before the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's not necessarily a, a tradition that we have to follow, but I think it's a good one to kind of center our minds where it needs to be. On that point, and I've said this now probably a half a dozen times in the last three to four years, 
if the first time you've thought about the Lord's Supper is when Danny gets up here or whoever the man is to make those comments, it's not too late, but it's too late. It's never too late to start thinking about those things, but you get the point that I'm making is that you should be thinking about that at very least as you approach the Lord's Day, as you get closer to it. Given that we partake of the Lord's Supper each Sunday, which was a discussion that I had with someone even this morning, being present each Sunday is critical. If you're not here, you're not here. And you can't do that with us. And so there are passages like Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. This is a verse that, again, needs to be kind of highlighted in our brains because this talks about the disciples coming together to break bread on the first day of the week. Paul says, just as I received from the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I am now delivering to you that when you come together, you partake of the Lord's Supper. Doing these activities isn't merely a suggestion, but it is a requirement. Now, again, we would say, and rightly so, if our shepherds were to say, we're not going to partake of the Lord's Supper, we would, we, would, we would revolt and say, we can't do that. We've got to do that. And not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it's a privilege to be able to say, I want to partake of this Lord's Supper and to focus for, even if it's just three to five minutes, just on thinking about in that quiet hour of my God who came in flesh and who died for me. Note, if you would, two very basic, but I believe fundamental facts. One is this, communion is with God, or communion is with, is, uh, I need to fix that. I'll fix that one day. But communion is with God. We are communing with our Lord, right? We come together and we say, God, you are with us. We go to that passage in Matthew where it says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. When we are communing, it is with God. We are having fellowship with him. It is our fellowship meal, to borrow from what denominations would suggest a fellowship meal should look like. And communion is with each other. It is something that we do with one another. And, and while our eyes may be closed or our eyes are focused on a text that we're reading and we may not be looking at one another, in essence, when I'm eating the bread and when I'm drinking the cup, if I happen to cross eyes with you or to, to glance over and see you, Yep, we're in this thing together. We all believe this is important. We don't partake of communion in our own homes individually, separate from one, from one another at, say, 8.30 in the morning, and then say, okay, now we can go to services and worship our God. We do it when we come together on occasions like this. I did a sermon just a few weeks ago where I talked about the most important 10 minutes of each week. And Brother Bruce made reference to this this morning when he says, it brings riches to the way that we worship our God in our communion with one another. And thirdly, we come together on occasions like this to engage in communal prayer. Now, if the only time, I am going to go out on a, on a limb here, if the only time you pray is when we come together in the confines of this building, some is drastically wrong with your prayer life. Now, I think we're all in universal agreement of that. 
Prayer is not something that we just do when we come together three or four times on an occasion like this. Individual, private, intimate communication with God is fundamental. It is Jesus patterned. It is Christ oriented and it is absolutely vital. Speaking of understatements of the century or understatements that I'm going to make in 2024, prayer is vital. And we all understand that. And so I think I'm speaking to a group of people that appreciate this. There's a principle that I made reference to just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. But there's a practical thought as well. And that is when we come together, our prayers should be together. There are occasions, and I I don't disagree that it is uh, not appropriate for this. There are occasions where a man will lead prayer and will say, I pray this, or I pray that for this congregation. And I, and I don't have qualms about that. Some, some may. But you'll notice, and I haven't tallied it over 2023. I wasn't keeping track. But you'll notice that when a man leads prayer, he says, we, us, constantly. Because he's leading prayer for the group, for the saints that are gathered, which is the church. Church is not a building or a structure. If the building burns down, we, that would be unfortunate, but we, it'd be incorrect to say, well, the church got destroyed. Well, the church is okay. It's okay. Everything's fine. We'll build the building back. The church is still here. And so in James chapter 5 and verse 15, a passage that many of you have memorized or at the very least have read dozens, scores, maybe hundreds of times, it says the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And then he goes on in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. There's such to be said about So much to be said about the idea of one another in Scripture. But we are to pray for one another, to confess to one another, and to be in communion with one another. Now, I made a joke about this, I think, two weeks ago, about the idea of acts of worship and that announcements aren't an act of worship that need to occur either at the beginning or at the end. And the joke that I made was that when I was young, I remember the first time I heard them made at the wrong time at least when I was eight years old, what I thought was the wrong time. But while announcements aren't an act of worship, they help in this act. And we also have, in order to keep things from falling through the cracks, we have people who are keeping track of those announcements. And certainly if you want a copy of those, you're welcome to. Every saint who is a part of this congregation is part of one of four help groups And those leaders do a good job of providing a kind of a comprehensive list, a catch-all of here's who we're concerned about, particularly this week or this month, which we should be doing. We should be aware of those things. And when you are sick, when you've lost a loved one, when you are spiritually ailing, you want people praying for you. And we cannot know what to pray for unless you communicate that in this communal aspect of prayer. Nothing wrong with private prayer. It needs to be a daily activity, of course. But there's something very right about us coming together to engage in prayer in a communal way like this.
Let me suggest to you, fourthly, something that you may have forgotten about, but you haven't forgotten about. And I say that kind of with an asterisk next to it for a point that I'll make in about three minutes. And that is giving of our means. When we come together on a Wednesday evening, we don't collect any money. When we come together uh, on Saturday, the 27th of January for our special series, we won't collect any money. When our men's study uh, kicks off in a couple of weeks on a Tuesday evening, we won't pass a basket or have the baskets available or make some sort of comment or announcement. We will do that on the Lord's Day. And why do we do it on the Lord's Day? Because, you guessed it, that's what they did 2,000 years ago in the book that is our guidebook that helps us. The free will collection is the only means of fundraising authorized for us to use in paying bills and supporting needy saints, evangelism, and paying for the various things that are a part of the physical facility that we enjoy. That's the only way that we raise funds. We don't have bake sales. We don't have rummage sales. We don't do all the things that so many denominations do. That's the only way that this group is funded. I remember hearing uh, uh, an outside business person uh, who was not a member of the church, but when he heard that that's how local churches govern themselves and fundraise, and I use that kind of in quotes because we don't, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but, but we are raising funds to pay for these expenses. He says, that's incredible. You mean people of their own free will without any sort of obligation, secretly just drop money in a basket and you have enough to do with what you need to do with? Yeah, that's how it works. Huh. It's almost like God designed it that way. And of course, he did. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, this is, again, a passage that young people and old people, uh, not elderly people, but young and older, uh, need to appreciate where it says, concerning a collection for the saints, as I have given to the, to the orders of the churches of Galatia, so also do you, Corinth. Concerning the collection on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing it as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. There's some finer nuances to what was going on here with the particular needs of these first century Christians, but that's the pattern that we follow. And as members of a local church, there is a special relationship with that collection. There may be some who are here this morning that are not members of Northfield, but instead are members of a church elsewhere in the state or in the community or outside of Tennessee. And your relationship with us financially is different than the relationship of the vast majority who are present here including that when we go elsewhere, comments will often be made if you're visiting with us from another congregation or from another state. Your responsibility financially does not exist here. And so we often will say to those of you that are visiting, to those of you that are not members of this congregation, you don't have an obligation and we don't expect anything from you. And don't feel bad that you don't put in money into the collection. Let me suggest to you, Three very quick facts. Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are a good uh, tandem uh, to read as well. But in chapter 9 of the second letter that is recorded for us, 
there's a statement that is made, which is, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's something to be said about the translation of that maybe being hilarious. It's not that we chuckle when we give, but it is an enjoyable thing to be able to say, this money that I'm giving is going to go to a good cause. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that you be a present giver, and that is you be a regular giver. You don't just give once every couple of months when maybe I've got an extra $20. You purpose in your heart, and it may not be that much. Then again, God isn't concerned about necessarily the amount. He's concerned about the heart more so than that. And three, be a conscientious giver. What about when you're absent? And most of us, I think, think about that, that when you're absent, you say, oh, well, I'll be absent next week. And you know you're going to be absent, so you make provisions to give while you come back or have someone give for you, whatever the case may be. And we've got to be very cautious. And this is the comment that I just kind of briefly alluded to in my asterisk just about three to four minutes ago, that in a COVID era, I want to say, in my notes, I wrote slash post-COVID, I don't know if if that's appropriate to say, era, we've got to be careful that we don't neglect the giving as just being a sub point to the worship service. Used to, where we passed the baskets, we invested more of our time territory on giving, where it literally took probably three minutes in a building this size with 170 people or so. It's going to take about three minutes to get those baskets from front to back. Now, those three minutes are down to about 30 seconds where someone makes a comment, and and our men do a good job of making those comments and using some passages that talk about that. But we've cut it now more than half, and so maybe subconsciously we think that giving of our means is a less important act of worship. One of the reasons that I chose to make this particular point is, one, because of a comment that was made a couple of weeks ago by someone that maybe even some of our younger people couldn't identify that giving is an act of worship. That's not a good sign. So let's make sure we clear that up very quickly. And two, I made reference to this about a year and a half ago. I'm aware of at least one and maybe more churches that have struggled with this issue Generally speaking, smaller churches without the uh, advantage of elders to oversee, where because we no longer pass baskets in a COVID, post-COVID world, that there was division and disagreement among the brethren over how that should be handled. Let me suggest to you finally that there is a study of God's word that needs to transpire when we come together to study, whether it be in a communal study for 40 minutes or whether it be a lecture or a sermon much like this, local congregations do typically two things in an effort to teach and to study God's word, one of which is sermons. And I appreciate Brother Eric making good comments this morning about David and me, but also the fact is, is we have a dozen to a dozen and a half men Uh, who regularly sign up and do a fine job and a more than fine job of delivering sermons. And if something were to happen 
that David got sick and I got sick, and he came down Saturday night at 9.30, and we called one of the elders and said, hey, David's sick, and then 10 minutes later, Leland says, I'm sick too. Well, they probably say, toughen up and get there, right? <laughs> but if that truly happened, the good news is, is we are blessed with men who are able to deliver a sermon and to do more than just talk for 20 or 30 minutes and put some nice thoughts together. We also come together and we have Bible classes. And we do that because we study the Bible. We do that, and I appreciate our Brother Eric mentioning this in our prayer this morning at the outset of our Bible class. Our elders have said, you know what? It makes sense to spend an additional 40 minutes or so in study of Bible and to do so in age groups that are appropriate so that a third and fourth grader can get their uh, level of understanding and a high school student can get their level and whatever the case may be. I think we all agree that study is important and is vital. Acts 17, verse 11, another verse that I was taught to memorize from a very young age is that those saints in this particular location were more noble-minded because they studied the scriptures daily. Study to show yourself approved, Paul would say, a workman so that he will not be ashamed in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Let me suggest to you two aspects of engagement in Bible study and in sermon listening. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, that in the last four and a half years, I've listened to more sermons that I've listened to in a long time. And I'm glad about that. And it's not because David does such a superb job, though he does, but I'm glad because of the dual preacher arrangement, because I learned so much from listening as much as I do preparing. But let me suggest to you, number one, is being engaged in a sermon is important. What does it mean to be a good listener? Uh, well, I'm not going to go through a long list. This is a group that is comprised of, in my estimation, of generally good listeners. Uh, being awake is helpful. Uh, sometimes nodding, uh, not nodding off, but nodding is helpful. Uh, smiles are helpful. Sometimes even puzzled looks are helpful because uh, there are times, and I think I can speak for David, if I get a puzzled look from someone, David or I will say, okay, maybe I need to go back 20 seconds and revisit that point and kind of clear that up just a little bit. But I appreciate, and anybody that stands in this pulpit or teaches a Bible class appreciates good listeners. And let me suggest to you, being engaged in the Bible class is also important. You may not make any comments. Uh, you may not even say anything to the, to the teacher at the conclusion. But get to a place where these things are not optional. And I remember someone saying years ago, don't ever raise your children in an environment where you say, well, we're going to go to Bible class today, or are we just going to, just going to go to worship services? There are times where you can't go to both because of sickness or because of issues and work and things that happen and life happens. But if at all possible, you're not here routinely for our Bible classes, we'd love for you to be here so that you can be here and so that you can benefit from it. Let me suggest to you in conclusion, three very simple things. One, being present at occasions like this is essential to doing these four or five things, depending on how you want to number them. Secondly, the failure to do these four or five things on a regular basis puts a person in a sinful state. If you're not here to willfully and, and not here willfully, say, I'm just not going to go to services, and therefore I'm not going to sing, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to partake, I'm not going to do all these things, you're not doing what's right. 
And that's not me being judgmental. That's just me telling you what the truth of the matter is. And let me suggest to you that thirdly, a commitment to the local church is a great way to encourage others. If you're not here, you will not be here and we will miss you accordingly. And when you see someone not present, even if you think, well, they're probably just out of town, reach out to them, let them know they're missed, and let them know that you care and that you missed seeing them and do your very best to encourage them. In many ways, this is a kind of first principles kind of lesson, but I hope that I included a couple of things that will help us to think about some of the maybe nuances of the way that we do things and make sure that we do them in the most accurate, authentic and uh, way that we can possibly do in glory to our God. We are a part of a kingdom that will never be shaken, that will always exist, and we enjoy being citizens of that kingdom, being members of his church, and we enjoy being members of this local body. And if we can help you to grow closer in any way, we'd love that opportunity. As we begin, we are talking to people who are fellow citizens, and if you are not right living in God's sight and you need for us to pray for you and with you, we're happy to do so. Secondly, to those who are non-citizens, to those who are non-saints, to those who are non-Christians, to those who are non-believers, maybe you need to, this. well, not maybe, you need to make a correction, but maybe this morning is the time you've decided to make that change. We can be glad to help you. We can be glad to assist you. And we are more than happy to, to work with you to draw yourself closer to God today. If you can be of any assistance to us as we are of assistance to you, let us know if we can help while we stand, while we sing.